Welcome to The Wonder, exploring perspectives, rituals, and observances of modern naturalistic, earth-revering, pagan religious paths. Here are your hosts, Yucca and Mark. Welcome back to The Wonder, science-based paganism. I'm your host, Mark. And I'm Yucca. And today we have a really wonderful opportunity for our listeners. We are interviewing Daniel Strain, who is executive director of the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Daniel is a humanist minister, a speaker, and a writer on the topics of ethics, spirituality, and ancient philosophy. And he leads meditations and speaks on occasion at the Jade Buddha Temple for the VA Hospital Meditation Program and for other local groups in the Houston, Texas area. So we're really delighted to have you with us. Welcome, Daniel. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So we thought that it would be really interesting to interview you because your approach to spirituality goes kind of beyond the the focus area for most sort of pagan paths, which tend to be ritually oriented and more around ecstatic experience, kind of trance-based experience, that kind of uh, ritual experience, rather than the contemplative, meditative sorts of experiences that are also kind of another pillar of religious practice and, and practice, I guess, <laughs> throughout the world. So, yeah, I understand that, sure. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to spiritual naturalism and, and about the society? Okay. Yeah. I, I guess my own personal practice includes elements of both, really, uh, ritual and static experience. I guess I'm a little bit of a mix of a uh, uh, stoic, a Buddhist, a humanist, and a pagan. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and everybody has their own little cocktail of things that, that works for them. And so for about, I guess, since 2005, I've been in a pretty careful uh, comparative uh, study, especially between Buddhism and Stoicism overlaps in those two philosophies. Somewhere along the line, uh, you know, originally I come from a conservative Christian family. Then in my young adult time, I, I became a, an atheist and a humanist, a secular humanist. I was involved with a lot of the humanist organizations. I'm still a uh, humanist celebrant. I've conducted weddings and things like that, and I, I'm still a humanist. But also, I found that even though I agree with the principles of humanism, they're all very, they're intentionally designed to be general principles. So there wasn't a lot there in terms of your dealing with life and living and how to live well and all that kind of thing in a more detailed sense. So I kind of went back to philosophy, which I'd already always been interested in. But what I learned with Stoicism and Buddhism is that what you are is not just about some laundry list of opinions or beliefs. This idea of something you put into practice that's transformational, that transforms who you are and how you experience the world and your quality of life. That was kind of foreign to me growing up as a conservative Christian. I was this list of things you were supposed to believe and if you believe that you were saved and then after i became a humanist there was a different list of things you were supposed to believe to be a humanist mm -hmm. and they were all just a list of beliefs about beliefs not about practice and so i was really became a true believer in all of that and uh, i it's still in the course and so i was looking for organizations out there that were based around uh, spiritual practices that didn't rely on anything supernatural or faith-based kind of beliefs, that sort of thing. I couldn't find really anything at the time. So in 2012, I decided to start the uh, Spiritual Naturalist Society and found a lot of wonderful people from all kinds of different backgrounds and traditions, religious and non-religious, that were kind of seeing the same thing. I, I call it the convergence. It's this kind of end of the spectrum within all of these different religious in philosophical backgrounds that's on the naturalistic end, meaning, you know, within almost every religion, you've got a spectrum of interpretation, one that's a lot more supernatural, and then one, especially emerging more recently, that's more naturalistic takes on things. 
And so where all of those people come together and overlap, that's what you, that's when you start seeing a naturalistic spirituality, spirituality based nature based on the, the physical world as we understand it through the senses. And so SNS is really about all kinds of people coming together and sharing ideas and thoughts, whether it's paganism, uh, you know, naturalistic paganism, I should say, or secular Buddhism or things like Stoics, not to say that all Stoics are naturalists, but for those that are, and there's even some naturalistic Christians out there, believe it or not. And so you've got a lot of diversity there. And as far as the practices and ideas, yeah. So I love talking about contemplative practices. And like I said, I practice both ends of that spectrum in my in my own practice. I'm a big, I, I really love going to burns, you know, like uh, you've heard of burning man, right? Well, there's a lot of smaller burns that go on the same sort of ethos, the same sort of community. So I go to a lot of the smaller burns in around Texas. And that's always a very spiritual experience. And that includes dancing around a bonfire and music and very ecstatic kinds of things. And I often think about, there were some ancient Greek philosophers who even though they were Stoics, would go to the Eleusian mysteries. And yeah, so they, you know, there's, there's uh, room for both ends of that in a single practice. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like what, what I really like about what you're talking about is how inclusive it is of people from all different kinds of paths coming together around this central organizing principle of naturalism, of, of, you know, just focusing on what we can understand about the universe and not positing supernatural forces that are kind of behind the curtain and we we can't see. One important part about that is that when you come at this from the perspective of a spiritual community or a spiritual practice, it's a totally different approach than, say, for example, a skeptic organization who's focused on using the principles of skepticism to critique other groups or to, you know, do things like that. And and I'm not saying that there's not a role for that, especially because a lot of these fault, you know, beliefs can be harmful and, you know, organizations behind them can do harmful things and they need to be countered, you know, so that's all important work that they do, uh, skeptic organizations and uh, humanists and atheist organizations that, that focus on criticism. But when you have, when you're doing a spiritual practice, what you do is you invert those principles of skepticism on yourself and it becomes more like a humility. It turns into a personal spiritual practice of humility of withholding assent, as the Peronians would say, where you are mindful and aware of the assumptions that you are making in your beliefs. And that's what I like about that. Mm-hmm. The reason I, you know, when I, when I first sat down to say, okay, so spiritual naturalist society, what's it going to be about all that you have to decide where you're going to, how are you going to define what you're trying to do here in terms of community? What, you know, who's, who's, who are you, what's your target audience, I guess you could say. And so the reason I centered on naturalism I'd had a number of experiences going to the Unitarian Universalist Church, which is a great group of people that they're so admirable for their tolerance and their openness and their diversity. There's all kinds of people at a Unitarian church. It's a wonderful thing, and I'm so glad that they exist. But when I personally am looking for fellowship, I find that that issue of whether a person is a naturalist or a supernaturalist to be something that makes it very difficult to talk about any other topic because any topic you broach, if the underlayment isn't there, then it's like you're coming from two different worlds and you end up, the topic gets diverted into whether or not there's a supernatural, whether or not there's uh, how, what we base our beliefs on, how we get our beliefs, all of that becomes a huge distraction to any particular topic that you want to talk about. So part of that, that fellowship to me, it stops being work and starts being fellowship when we have at least some shared basis of reality, you know, 
that we can talk about. So that was an important part. But other than that, it's it pretty much just assumes uh, naturalism. So like one of our standards in our articles that we publish, we don't write articles about why you should be a naturalist <laughs> or why that as reason and evidence are good and faith-based beliefs are unsound. You know, we don't make those kinds of arguments because it's for naturalists. So we assume we're talking to naturalists and we say, okay, what now? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, there's mm -hmm. the natural world, atoms in the void, physics. Now what? How do you live your life? So I think a lot of our viewers are, are familiar with naturalism. There are a couple of terms that you used in your own story that people might have heard but aren't really familiar with what they mean. So specifically humanism and being a stoic. Can you talk about what that means? Give me that opportunity because that's a great point that uh, stoicism is a generic word or general word in our language today. And usually when people use it, they mean it in a very different sense than the school, the ancient school of stoic philosophy. So they're probably already thinking something like Mr. Spock or somebody who's non-emotional, that sort of thing. Statue-like. Um, yeah, yeah. But stoics would laugh and have jokes and smile and all that stuff. Uh, ancient Stoicism wasn't kind of, you know, the word as it's used today is distorted and different than that. But ancient Stoicism was more about having healthy emotions. So there are healthy emotions and then there's unhelpful or unhealthy emotions. It's kind of like the same distinction is made today. For example, when people are grieving, there's a healthy grieving process that someone might go through, for example. But then there's also forms of grieving that can lead to problems that people then need to cope with and deal with and work through. And so the distinction between when you're having a, a healthy or an unhealthy kind of emotion and where those, un, where those emotions come from and what kinds of judgments we are making, even if they're subconscious judgments at first or microscopic judgments that we make that are affecting the way we look at the world, our framing of things, and that perspective and how we look at the world will then dictate whether or not our emotional responses are aligned with reality or whether there's some kind of misalignment there, which causes what the Stokes call pathos. So that's the idea is having a healthy emotional life in the ways that we can do that. But that's assuming that, of course, people aren't in need of a more drastic intervention, you know, there's a place for, you know, more modern kinds of ways of dealing with depression, things like that, of course, too. But I, people often really, this is something about contemplative practice in general. It's extremely powerful and that can be a good or a bad thing. It's like, I tell people, it's like opening up the back panel on yourself and voiding your warranty. You are messing <laughs> with, you know, the operating system. And so when you do these contemplative practices, you better be sure that you're doing, you're, you're practicing something that's right, that's health, healthy, and is going to work for you and is, and you're not going down some road of programming yourself in a bad way or in an unhelpful way. And that's what spiritual community is for. So we can all kind of like ping off of one another, find balance and, and get input from it that's a really good point because, you know, one of the things that people ask me as, as, as an atheopagan, as a, a naturalistic pagan, one of the things that people ask me in some cases is, well, what's the point? If there aren't any gods, then what are you doing all this stuff for? And, and I mean, I, I had to sit with that question for a while as I was framing the atheopagan path. And what I concluded was, well, it's to be happy, to have a joyous life, and to be effective in the world in a positive manner, in to, to help the world be a better place. Mm -hmm. And that's really all that's that's all that I could come up with in terms of what the goal is. And so as you say, these, you know, both the contemplative practices and the ritual practices can be very psychologically influential they can they can transform us right so it's pretty important that you have well-being and health and 
kind values and all that kind of stuff at the root of your motivation for doing that so that you don't, as you say, mess up the operating system. <laughs> yeah, and I find that the, the, con the contemplative parts of practice help my ecstatic parts of my practice because mm -hmm. most of the time when I've had a ecstatic ritual kind of experience that was most impactful to me and transformative, if I look back on it, I have to realize that I was prepared for that in that moment because I had already cultivated a certain set of perspectives or understandings or had prepared my uh, mental awareness in such a way where when the ecstatic experience happens in the moment, the way I paid attention to it or digested it was affected by the contemplation of these concepts beforehand. You know, you've, we've all been to something where we're just like moved and transformed and you look over at the person next to you and you're just looking at their phone or, you know, it's like they're not in the same place you are. And so these, these moments of, of static ritual and transformation are, they, they're gifts that come to us because of the coming together of a lot of factors at just the right time in just the right way. And so contemplation can be an underlying that helps kind of set the stage in your mind for, for those kinds of things so, so that you're receptive and, and that you're interpreting them and valuing them in a certain way and understanding them. You know, when, when I go to Burns, for example, whenever they're burning the effigy in the, last night, I always look to my sides as well to look at the other people, see what them watching the, the fire. And you can always tell that there are certain people there that are going through an experience and then other people they're just at a party you know <laughs> they did for them it's just a party and that's fine too it's okay to just go to a party but there's something that goes on in your mindset uh, that sets up your mindfulness and sets up your first of all just your basic knowledge and awareness of concepts and principles and how they relate to one another and symbolism and how the symbolism, you know, my earliest experience of ritual was not that. My earliest experience of ritual was going to a Baptist church and just sitting there and kind of like doing what I'm supposed to do, waiting through the process until we can get out of there. And then even when I was pursuing these kinds of things and I went to the Unitarian church, things they were doing still felt like empty theater to me. I call it empty theater. Like you're just doing these motions and it's like, yeah, this means that. I understand this is a symbol of that. I like the candle, it means this, blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't really do anything. And today, when I light incense before I meditate or I light a candle or I bow at the Buddha temple, it is a completely different thing. And it's because I have found the, the right symbols for me and the, the symbols that mean the right things that I am moved by and want to pursue and are ready for. And so when I do that bow, when I enter Jade Buddha Temple, the meditation hall, I bow uh, to the statue at the front. But the bowing is immaterial. What's important is what's going on in my mind as I bow. Mm -hmm. And doing that physical action is a thing to make it real to your mind. It connects the external with the internal. So as I do that bow, I'm imagining that I'm putting, I'm leaving behind all the other distractions I had outside the temple doors. I'm clearing my mind like you clear a table and bringing all of my focus on the why I'm there. And that, if I just went in and I bowed while I was looking at my phone, the bow would be superfluous, be irrelevant. And that's something that, we naturalists are especially should be attuned to because, you know, if, if you thought that there was a magical, invisible being who was watching to make sure you bowed, and if you bowed, they were happy, and if you didn't bow, then they're unhappy, that's an external thing. So, yeah, now that's how the bowing becomes important. Well, I went to church, I made Jesus happy, so, you know, but that's meaningless to a naturalist. It's meaningless to 
naturalistic spirituality. It's only if there is something internal happening that. And so that contemplative practice is, is one of the ways that you find what that vow means to you? Yeah, I would say, you know, at the, the most rudimentary basic starting point is just one of your practices is, you know, reading, taking in new information. And I found even going back and rereading, because mm-hmm. I'll read a book that's transformative to me at the time. And I'm like, wow, it's really opens in my mind. And then I'll feel like, well, I read that. I know that stuff, you know, but after a year or two, if you go back and you reread it, it helps you get it more into your mind. So that's the first most rudimentary level is just taking in the information. Then there's this whole other thing about mindfulness. We hear mindfulness has become so trendy now, this, this whole mindfulness concept. <laughs> you just think of it like, oh, it's like yoga or going to some yoga class or something. But really, it's about everything moment to moment. It's like, so here's an example of, of you might notice that if you talk to Stoics or uh, Stoic practice, or you see Stoics, that they are, they do seem to be more even keeled. I mean, if they're practicing and they're doing okay and they practice, they'll, they'll be more even killed in general. Not that they're going to be perfect, but what's going on there is not, I always tell people, if you're trying to control or suppress an emotion or anything like that, even if it's been identified by Stoic philosophy as something that's unhelpful, if you're trying to com- deny, suppress, anything like that, that's unhealthy. It gives it more power in you, yeah, right? If you're it, trying to fight against it. it right. Yeah. It's always about paying attention, accepting and seeing and not denying, not looking away, not suppressing. Right. So instead, what contemplative practice is about is about a slower, longer term transformation of the way you look at the world so that, well, I would say the intellectual part is about changing the way you look at the world so that when things arise, the things that make you angry or make you worry or make you sad are not the same things that they used to be. So it's not a question of fighting an emotion. It's just a question of bringing yourself into alignment with, you know, one with the force or one with nature as the the Stoics would say, you know, if you are in alignment with truth, truth, beauty, goodness, nature, reality, the Tao, whatever you want to call it, the way of things. If you are in alignment with the way that the natural emotions that emerge from that kind of being or that kind of person who's like that will tend to be productive, healthy ones. I can give you an example if you want. Um, that's stoicism, the stoic scheme has a lot to do with framing. Right. right now, I mean, in modern day times, there's things called like neuro-linguistic programming and stuff. Cognitive behavioral therapy was highly influenced by stoicism. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about, about stoicism here, but I'll bring this out in more general terms in a little bit. But stoicism, so in this framing, they give labels to things, things that are common words, but in stoicism, they have very specific meanings. So for example, there's a difference between uh, concern and fear. So in Stoicism, fear, and it's not just a difference of degree, it's a different kind of psychological mechanism that brings about these two things. So, and it has to do with stimulus and response. So we we get a stimulus and then we have an emotional response. And a lot of times people will say things like, that person makes me so mad, but nobody makes you mad. What happens is they do something and then between stimulus and response is this judgment, this judgment nexus, this little microscopic judgment, subconscious judgment, or sometimes conscious. And that judgment says, this is a thing to get mad about. And then the the response is, you get mad. So what you have to do is examine those judgments. And Stokes say that pathos, unhealthy emotion, comes from false judgments. And eupathe or healthy emotions comes from true judgments. And so there's some kind of falsehood in the judgment. Like the most obvious one is that, hey, this person has done this thing. If I get really internally worked up and angry and upset, that will be a good response that will help uh, this not to happen anymore or 
solve the issue. And obviously it's not. You can do all kinds of external things. You can go tell the person, hey, you need to do something different, blah, blah, blah. But none of those external things you can do and should do require your internal strife, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's a false judgment. So fear and you could say worry as well, fear and concern. Concern is the true judgment that I need to pay attention to this so that I can do X, Y, and Z. It has a productivity to it. When you do it, you go from A to B to C to D, and then you've done that mental activity, you come to your conclusion, you take your action and then cause a result, and you're done. Fear or worry is you've made a judgment that you need to do some sort of internal activity, but there's nowhere for it to go. It doesn't do anything. You're waiting on your test results. You won't get till Monday. So what do you need to think about? You know, <laughs> so the wheels just turn round and round and round and there's this repetitiveness to it. So that kind of way of dealing with things, that's the kind of things that bring you into alignment with truth. And as you come into alignment with truth, the slow process is that things get easier. Life gets more joyful and you have more equanimity, more patience, more, more joy, joy. So that's generally what a contemplative type practice is about. Even if it's not stoicism, Buddhism has similar sorts of practices. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's, that's, that's a really good explanation. Thank you. I, I thought it was really interesting. And, and maybe this is just coincidental, but as you were listing the things to be in alignment with three, they were three, they included three of the four sacred pillars of atheopaganism, <laughs> beauty, truth, life, meaning the biosphere, nature, right, the world. And then the last one is love you know, to be in alignment with those kinds of values is, is what we consider sacred. So it seems like there are, there are lots of, there's lots of overlap of these various different schools of thought and, and traditions that are all kind of pointed in the same direction in many ways. Yeah, the perennial path, as it's called. Um, you'll see that there's a similarity of path of uh, path of enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, some kind of progress we make as we as we do our practice. And what I, what I imagine is that these different traditions, they basically just place their signposts at different points along the path, the same path. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's what they emphasize and what they don't emphasize as much is, is a little different. But when you overlay them all, you see they're kind of all lining up on the same path. And so I look for those common traits between the two. Where do they overlap? Where, where are these ideas kind of like, and, and it's kind of a complex endeavor because of language, culture barriers, and time barriers. And you have to say, well, this idea sounds like they're saying the opposite thing, but really that's because the scholars in the 1950s chose that word to translate this concept and they chose this word to translate that. And so now when we just use our colloquial meaning of these words, it looks like they're saying the opposite thing. And really they're saying the same thing. There's all kinds of this sleuthing you have to do to kind of get past all that to get to the concepts. But those, I'm glad you mentioned love though, because compassion is, is another great example. The contemplative connects with the ecstatic. So for me, I, I've always, I, was, I started out as you know, one of my handicaps coming into this was that I was always a very analytical kind of person, very sciencey, like a lot of humanists, like a lot of secular humanists, you know. And so, I didn't really understand intuitive, subjective kinds of things or the importance of the subjective. I kind of thought, well, what matters is facts, evidence, and what people do, you know, hard things like that. But things like the subjective are so important that they make the difference between, say, two wealthy executives with all of this power and luxury in their lives and one of them jumps out of a building that that's the difference i mean that's the that just goes to show that external circumstances are not or take the opposite example two people in a prison camp or in a you know terrible hostage situation or something like that. one of them is crushed and the other one is not that there's something else that's going on internally between these different people 
and studying what that is is, is a worthy thing. But uh, let me come back to compassion real quick. So Thomas Merton, you know, you know who he was, the mm-hmm. Trappist monk. He he was a Christian monk who, in the at least by the sixties, was having these dialogues across the East-West divide, you know, across with Eastern monks and everything. They were comparing their ideas and talking about that, really opened up that dialogue. And Thomas Merton said that compassion is the keen awareness of the interconnectedness of all things. And so in Buddhism, you've got, you know, concepts concepts of interdependence, interconnectedness, this things as a network, everything, they, they call it dependent origination. Everything is interrelated to everything else in the network, causally interconnected. And so the whole point of a contemplative practice, the whole point of a spiritual practice, really, because it includes the ecstatic, the function of the ecstatic, the whole point of all of that is to say, we hear an idea like that and we think, oh yeah, everything's interconnected. Great, sounds good. That's intellectual (laughs) assent. Intellectual assent is not enough because we, we know it. We think we know it. We agree to it. We say we agree to it. But when push comes to shove, we don't actually live that way. We don't actually respond moment to moment. You know, most people's experience with spirituality is there's the inspirational poster and this cool sounding piece of wisdom over a sunset. And they post it on their wall, virtual wall, and then they hang it on their physical wall and they look at it and they use it as a reminder. And then they go off and they get angry. They get upset. They do foolish things. They get consumed by whatever. And then that later they come back, they read the poster and they, okay, breathe. And they remind themselves and they try to like, you know, pull themselves back to the wisdom. That's what not having a spiritual practice is. So when you don't have it, what what you'll do is you'll continuously be agreeing with something intellectually, but it's not what you are. It's not who you are. It's not your actual nature. And so what spiritual practice is about is taking the intellectual in, getting it down deep, you know, making it... Mm -hmm more and more becoming more and more deeply aware with it on an intuitive level on a like the way you catch yourself when you fall mm-hmm. like that is how you look at it deep down and so when you really take those pieces of great wisdom and you really internalize them so interconnectedness of all things the more that becomes seen and felt that that's the difference between a person who has drawing on a chalkboard and doing calculations about wave harmonics and a surfer. So the surfer is not thinking about the physics of waves. The surfer is feeling the waves. The surfer has a dancing relationship with the waves. They know intuitively what to do next. They don't even have to be in their intellectual mind. And so What we got to do if we really want to transform to be in alignment with truth and alignment with nature is we have experiences that make things real to us. And that's just like life, right? That's why you can't sit down a young person. You can have an old wise person sit down a young person and then just tell them, just tell me what you experienced. And then they'll be a young wise person. It doesn't happen. They have to go through the experience. And so if the experiences of our life transform us, that's like, it's kind of like uh, natural selection in a way. Your your soul, your your being, your spirit of who you are is shaped and molded by experience in in just kind of a natural way. Whatever you experience is going to shape you. Well, practice is basically like artificial selection. It's, It's saying, okay, we're going to create experiences for ourselves that will transform us in consciously directed ways mm-hmm. rather than just open to get transformed, however, or whatever, without being mindful and thinking about it. And so taking that interconnectedness of all things and through various practices and rituals, making it real to us 
changes our personality, changes the way we respond to things as they happen. And when that happens, then we really know, then we grasp it, we grok it, you know, it becomes actually the way we intuitively react to the world. And when that happens, then things that are called compassion, love, uh, forgiveness, kindness, they kind of become like these kindergarten labels and really it's all just sanity it's just <laughs> that's what a sane person does because they see the truth of the situation yeah. mm. not to say that i'm there for sure or that any of us are perfectly <laughs> there but sure. it's something we can make progress on as mm. we work on it more. right and, and we can get the fruits of it which is a joy and a happiness that comes from that kind of so, so really what you're talking about with contemplative practices and say ecstatic practices, those two words we've been using, they're all, they're all kind of the same thing. They're just different kinds of experiences that touch different parts of our minds. Our mm -hmm. minds are all interconnected. So you want things that are going to engage the intellectual part, the intuitive part, the emotional part, the social part. Uh, the left and right brain, you know, you want all kinds of different multimedia kinds of experiences in a sense. And so the emotion burns it in there, you know? Sure. But these same things happen in cults and they happen in like white nationalist movements and all kinds of things like that, which is why the knowledge in sharing and community cross education is important because that's why it's dangerous to open that back panel because somebody could just as easily become the wrong things get distilled down mm -hmm. into a person yeah really hateful and angry yeah. mm -hmm. so i look at compassion as the, the foundation of all practice because if you don't understand that interconnectedness of all things all the other teachings kind of arise out of that contemplative stuff will help you with like contemplative stuff, I guess I mean like uh, something like meditation, for example, will help you to open up that gap between the, the stimulus and the response, widen it out so that you can see what's going on in it, so that you can become more aware as you sense things arising in your mind, which were subconscious before or really quick before now. They're slowed down and you can see them arising. You can be aware of those judgments you're making so that you can examine them. So that's what mindfulness does. And so meditation, especially something like a breathing meditation, that gets you to practice focusing and stilling the rest of the mind. To be able to like just still your mind like that and bring all your focus to one place is a powerful tool that you can then use on every other spiritual practice. And then later, when you're doing ecstatic stuff, you can use that focus. Mm. And all that's going on is that. And you're not worried about your laundry or any of the other stuff going on. Mm. And you can also use it to be, to be more aware of others and more, you know, attention of the relationships. And everything. So mm -hmm. to me, it's all one. It's all interconnected, right? Uh-huh. Mm. Well, that's, yeah, I, I so agree with, with everything that you've said. It's the, I mean, having a path, being open to the prospect of evolving is something that it seems to me a healthy human must gravitate towards. And it's something that in our mainstream society, we aren't really encouraged to grow. We aren't encouraged to become wiser. We're encouraged to acquire products mm. and achievements and to get there, whatever there is, whether it's the American dream, house, car, family, or whether, whether it's, you know, attainment of the height of your career, whatever it is. But the idea that there, that it just goes on and on and that it's still an unfinished work when you die and you have to make peace with that is something that is not really discussed in our mainstream society very much really really choose away at the underpinnings of capitalism frankly it, it changes people's priorities but i i really like 
the way you talk about the contemplative meditative practices creating a an enhanced capacity to really take in the ecstatic experience through heightened focus mm -hmm. i think that's really true i mean my contemplative practices tend to be more around using tarot cards to sort of meditate on the symbology kind of go through an internal process that way but i do see how I use that focus that I've learned in grounding myself and getting into the present moment in other kind of peak experiences that I have. It's kind of the difference between, you know, if you think about this uh, path to greater enlightenment, I'll say greater enlightenment, because it's not one point where you just meditate right. but this, this, progressive path that you, that we're hopefully on in our practice. As we go like that, a lot of the contemplative practices have the characteristic of a slow, steady increase over time. You know, mm -hmm. as you stay consistent with your practice, you know, you see the improvements. But then there are these moments of epiphany that are these, and oftentimes they come with peak experience or sometimes an altered experience. Or sometimes just sitting and reading and something clicks in a way that it hasn't ever before. And you're just like, oh, wow, it's changed my life, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. But these little line, the line is gone from a 45 degree upward slant to a little jump, a peak, you know. And, and suddenly a major door was crossed through. So a lot of times our ecstatic experiences can, can bring about those kinds of things. But I'll say they come about in a lot of different ways. The ecstatic experiences for me help, it really do help to empower moving things from the, the just the intellectual part of my brain to the whole part of my brain, to everything, the uh, emotional and sen sensual and all of that through one system. That's what that really helps me with. And not to mention just also just release of, of your energies and your your kind of getting into the flow of things. I, I wrote an article one time about uh, drumming, drum circles, spiritual drumming, really, but drum circles and how when you are drumming in a drum circle, if you think like, okay, now is the time to hit the, the drum, you're already too late. You, yeah, you missed your chance. And so you have to get into this way of, thinking that is, or this way of not thinking, this way of, of being that is more automatic. And in, in the East, their martial arts are the same way. They're like, you get to this point where you're not thinking about it anymore. You're just, you know, you're like a, a puma on the hunt, you know, that <laughs> they're not thinking about anything else. It's just a direct flow of input to output. And the, mm -hmm. the body and the environment are one. And so that's kind of how a loving person, a kind person can get to a point where something happens, the gunman enters, they throw their body over the other person, not because they thought about it, not because they pulled out, you know, categorical imperative on ethics and then <laughs> thought about who has the obligations here and who has the rights here. And, you know, none of that stuff came up. They live as a, as a loving being, and so they act as a loving being. That oneness uh, and non-duality is inherent to the naturalistic. So one of the things that you've mentioned several times is steps that people can be taking is to be learning, to be reading, always bringing more information in. Are there particular resources that you would suggest to people or invite that they look into kind of mixed feelings about it because you know i like i said i have my personal cocktail of things and i'm happy to share that but i i want to also make clear that there's lots of worthy wisdom out there and that i still have yet to discover too but i have found you know i mentioned buddhism and stoicism taoism is is great too ancient greek thought in general from the axial age the Socratic schools, you know, they all have some great stuff in them. What I love about ancient philosophy is that they're dealing with things about how to live well. And, and by the way, when they say the good life, they don't mean, you know, 
hot tubs and the the good in terms of good virtue, but also really good in terms of good quality life too, because to them it's the same thing. But anyway, they focus more on that, whereas later philosophy started maybe building on that or going beyond that. But what happens is it gets into political theory and social theory and and those are all interesting things and everything. They don't talk about the operating system. You know, they don't talk about, you know, this is this is how we live. And all that stuff they come up with is still relevant. And what's really interesting is that the the Silk Road, this path of trade that opened up up until about I think the third century AD between Greece and Southeast Asia, and that caused a lot of interaction there between East and West. So that's why you find parallels uh, between Buddhism and Pyrrhonism, Stoicism, at least that's one theory as well. But some of them are incredibly striking in their similarities, but still have lots of differences too. So I think the most important thing is that you find things that you connect with, that, that really, it shouldn't be a chore, it should be more like an exploration and discovery. And sometimes things that seem silly, like if you realize I only like this because I really like that kind of music they do and I think it's cool or <laughs> something like that can be a great doorway, you know? Mm -hmm. And then you can learn something more substantive than that later. But if you're enthused, enthused about it, that can be a, a, a good way to, uh, you know, it, you have to, it's like the surfer, you have to feel what is right for you? Is this a trog or is it like, you know, fascinating? Can you not wait to get back to it and explore more about it? That, that's going to be part of the answer. Mm, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and one of the other things that you've talked about is, is the importance of mindfulness. And we, we kind of harp on the idea of paying attention on this podcast, <laughs> the you know, the idea of, you know, living in relationship with the world. And so being aware of what's happening and not sleepwalking through our lives. So I, I think that that's a really important piece because people will then be able to see what it is that really excites them by, by just tracking what they notice and what they find really stimulating and exciting they'll yes. they'll get clues as to what sorts of things will help them along their way yeah that's what's great that you know and paganism you know this idea of seeing the signs those kind of ancient ideas like that you know it's not that what the, the important part is what did what did you what stuck with you what noticed mm -hmm. what did you notice and why did you notice it even something like taking the random pages out of the Tao Te Ching <laughs> and you know the randomness of it is one thing but what when you, when it makes that impression on you what what are you what do you get out of that you know what do you see from that what that's gonna tell you something about yourself or even when you're trying to meditate you say i'm going to focus on the breath and you start focusing on the breath and then all this other stuff starts coming up rather than getting frustrated with it you just stay patient you set aside bring your attention back to the breath and then afterwards, you're like, wow, I can't believe that stuff came up. It tells you something about your subconscious. Mm -hmm. What was mm -hmm. on your mind? Why? Right. And so much of what all this is about is getting access to our subconscious. Mm -hmm. You know, getting finding a way to pull the carpet up a little bit and see what's underneath and, you know, figure out what our base assumptions are, what our fundamental fears and aspirations are, and then, you know, working to evolve those in ways that are healthy for us and, and help us to build contentment. Yeah, in Buddhism, they call them defilements, and in Stoicism, they call it misjudgments. So, hmm. but all of these little things that are in there that uh, understanding more about ourselves, you know, self-knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And also... What's interesting about self-knowledge is that it's, it means it in the conventional sense, but it also means knowledge of what is a self. Mm. And in Stoicism, there's this concept of expanding the sense of self. It's called oikiosis is the word. But what it means is like expansion of, if you imagine uh, concentric rings, like a tar mm -hmm. target in a darts game, 
and the center is self and then around that is like family and around that is uh, friends around that is community around that all, all beings of the cosmos the stoics created the word cosmopolitan what it meant originally was this was in the era era of the city state where people would ask are you an athenian or a spartan and they would say i'm a citizen of the cosmos hmm. so that that was their citizenship <laughs> nice that's um, wonderful. Their city-state was the cosmos. And so expanding the sense of self. And in Buddhism, there's the concept of no self. But what that does is it tells you that the, the way we think of self as the solid, unchanging, permanent thing is illusory. That that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So what that does is it frees us up then to say, well, we can decide what we want self to be. And that's transcendence when you, your seat of identity starts to move up and beyond out of that lizard brain up higher to connect with and associate itself with the larger community, the larger cosmos. Yucca, I don't know where we are for time, but I'd really like, Daniel, for you to let us know how we can access the Spiritual Naturalist Society. And, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure to, to talk with you. Great. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, the, it's snsociety.org, in Spiritual Naturalist Society. And, uh, you know, there's articles we publish every week. We have podcasts. There's uh, two or three seasons of a podcast on there. You can see if you want to join and become a member, there's different kinds you can do a free member or supporting membership you'll get a newsletter and also if anybody has their own programs or podcasts or things like that that relate to naturalistic forms of spirituality and you want us to share announcements with our members please let us know we're happy to you know partner with all other kinds of organizations in this this that's great that's great thank you so much thank you daniel yeah thank you have a great day. You too.